Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Bhumika, your host for today. And today we will be speaking with Professor Ajanta Subramanian on her new hot of the press, much awaited book called The Cast of Merit, Engineering Education in India, published by the Harvard University Press this December 2019. Uh, this is Professor Subramanian's Second book, and her first book was called Shoreline, Space and Rights in South India, which was published by the Stanford University Press in 2009. I'm so excited and so uh, happy to have you on this podcast, Ajanta. Welcome to New Book Network. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Perfect. Uh, As we always do, Ajanta, I would like to begin our conversation today by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, your arrival to anthropology, um, you know, your 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 choice of anthropology as both a pursuit and as a career now. So tell us a little bit more about how this happened, how all of this happened. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a little bit of a circuitous route uh, that I took into anthropology. So uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I was at Bryn Mawr College, and I only took one anthropology course. Um, and it was actually one that I didn't like. Uh, so, so, um, it didn't lead me to additional anthropology courses. Um, I ended up majoring in religion, um, with a focus on Christian theology, uh, mainly because of a professor, um, who taught me to read texts closely, uh, in a way that was, that I found really enabling and inspiring. Um, and within the study of Christian theology, I was especially drawn to the, to the liberationist tradition. Uh, because of how it uh, foregrounds the experiences of the oppressed um, as an as an interpretive vantage point, right on um, on that faith tradition, and my my senior thesis um, uh, compared um, the implications of structural oppression for an understanding of sin and redemption in the writings of two liberation theologians. One was. James Cone, uh, a black liberation, uh, a black American theologian, and Kay Wilson, who's a Dalit theologian, um, and I mean, I, I, I was really struck by their work, um, and the comparative project was really exciting to me. But by the end of college, I was pretty frustrated with a purely textual approach to religion, and I sort of began to look around for other options. Um, after my BA, I went back to Chennai, where my parents live, and I did some journalism and activism, uh, mainly around um, slum dwellers' rights in the city. Um, and this was the early 90s when the Hindu right was on the rise. Um, and I began reading more anthropological and historical work um, and slowly became convinced that anthropology would, in fact, be um, the best discipline um, for thinking about the politics of religion in India. Um, and I initially went to graduate school in anthropology at Duke uh, to work on the rise of 
of Hindu nationalism in Kanyakumri, which is the southernmost district in Tamil Nadu, um, the one that borders uh, the state of Kerala. But I ended up focusing on, instead of focusing on Hindu nationalism itself, I ended up focusing on the principal target of the Hindu right in the district, which was this fishing community of uh, low caste Catholics. Um, and so this focus kind of led me back to Indian Christianity and to the liberationist tradition uh, within the Indian Catholic Church, but now through a, a historical anthropology of this of this fishing caste. Um, mm-hmm. So my first book, um, Shorelines, was a kind of significantly revised version of my dissertation that looked at this um, fishing community's long history of claims making um, and tried to understand uh, this history of claims making as the basis for a post-colonial politics of rights. Um, and uh, so, you know, all of this might seem like a far cry from the focus of my second book, um, which is on the relationship between caste and merit within Indian engineering education. But I actually see both books as dealing with a lot of the same questions um, and approaches. So uh, both um, address the history of caste, which has been sort of my principal preoccupation. Um, as a scholar, um, and both look at how colonial legacies of caste formation continue to shape the dynamics of post-colonial democracy. Um, um, and in getting at the history of caste, I, in both of the books, I, I've looked at how caste uh, has been incorporated into col- both colonial and post-colonial projects of um, capitalist transformation and of governance. Um, and so thinking about caste within these kinds of projects uh, meant moving beyond its treatment as a as a category that's um, uh, that's emblematic of Indian cultural difference um, to thinking of it of it more as an instrument of classification and management um, that was imagined and and sort of deployed um, in relation to other categories like race. Um, class, tribe. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say about the two books is that um, in both I've, and this is not always explicit in the books, but in both of them, I, I sort of draw inspiration from um, Antonio Gramsci's work, um, especially a Gramscian understanding of hegemony um, to think about caste. Um, although the first book does so in order to get at caste subalternity and the second book does so to get at caste privilege. <laughs> so um and, and and I guess what I mean by a Gramscian um approach um, um is that I, I'm really interested in process um and, and and in um getting at a more robust account of political process. Uh, and I find Gramsci's insistence on contingency really crucial for moving uh, from thinking of power and politics uh, mainly in terms of stable structural logics that kind of seamlessly reproduce themselves to thinking of them in terms of unstable hegemonies uh, that, that actually require work to maintain. And and part of my ambition in this book in particular um, is to insist on the instability of meritocracy um, and to highlight this kind of wider field of contestation that makes this equation between caste 
merit and capital less of a of a guarantee, right? It's less of a given. Um, and I think it's really important for me to to emphasize this instability because, I mean, for one, it helps me get at a more properly historical account of how caste changes over time. Um, but I mean, just to repeat myself, it, it, it lets us see the work that goes into the consolidation of caste power, right? against certain kinds of pressures. Um, um, and then the last thing is, so Gramsci has this very kind of useful approach to consciousness um, as a sort of set of historical sediments, right? Where these older meanings persist and combine with newer ones. And, and this combination sometimes shores up existing structures of inequality and at other times helps to unsettle them. And this, this way of thinking about uh, a kind of a sedimented histories um, mm-hmm. was very useful for me for getting at, uh, 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 at meritocracy because merit, you know, merit is this term that is, um, that works ideologically to mark a discontinuity, right? Uh, with older forms of social organization, um, uh, you know, where, patronage and ascription mattered more um, than individual ability and achievement. And, you know, in this sense, I think meritocracy, as it's commonly understood, is is sort of part of this liberal common sense, uh, which assumes that the institution of formal equality has leveled the playing field and rendered all of these past inheritances irrelevant, right, uh, to uh, opportunity and achievement. And in the book, I'm I'm trying to show how this ideology of meritocracy actually obscures the role of caste inheritances um, in the present. Um, but, you know, just so that's the sort of continuity part. But uh, I'm also really interested in the power of merit as a claim uh, that underwrites new things like new forms of capital accumulation, new skills of caste identification. And uh, so I'm trying to get at both of these aspects of of the kind of his, history and present of caste. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Ajanta, for saying that. I mean, that, uh, you know, that gives me a pause to say that uh, your your own story about affection and disaffection with anthropology is, I suppose, an, an intimate relationship with a lot of anthropologists do have with anthropology per se. And uh, so that that's a wonderful sort of recounting of your own relationship with anthropology as it continues to unfold. And you know your 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 insistence and the way in which you draw inspiration from Gramsci in a, in the way when you, one reads your text the idea of maneuvering and ways in which different positions of power maneuver um, is is so it's it's right there it's one doesn't even have to read between the lines to find that out so that's I can I, I can totally understand and appreciate the ways in which you bring those questions into and um, anthropological account of what caste and castlessness and claims to castlessness can mean in terms of claims to merit. So thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, there is so much to to unpack in the book. There is, uh, it's so rich in so many ways. And it's such a rigorous and systematic account of the embeddedness, embeddedness of caste privilege in the discourse on merit in engineering education in India. And you say this several times in the book as well. It won't be off the mark to say that the argument can be extended to other kinds of education and employment uh, opportunities like law and bureaucracy, uh, many, right? Um, 
And you give us this this perspective through this course on technical skills in education, particularly through the story of IIT Madras and its location within the field of Tamil regional politics as well. So in that sense, you know, the first question that I really wanted to ask you to address, invite you to address is, you know, is there something about the value of technical education itself? I don't want to exceptionalize it from other forms of education, other sort of forms of knowledge creation and appropriation, but is there something about um, technical education uh, in the way that you talk about engineering education that can make it such a dual proposition for both the project of emancipation and conservatism, right? I mean, you see very beautifully in one of your chapters that um, technical education, I'm quoting, technical education has been more of a vehicle for advancing status claims than for transforming the caste basis of value. And that struck me in a way that, um, you know, I wanted to sort of know from you your own um, way in sort of choosing engineering education as, uh, as a subject to talk about merit. I mean, of course, one, when one uh, reads what you've been writing about it and speaking about it and the book itself, it, it makes so much sense. But for our listeners, I wanted you to, um, you know, offer a few comments about, can you unpack this, uh, the kind of complexities the promise of technical education holds out lies uh, as far as the making and unmaking of caste privilege is concerned. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I mean, as you say, it's one could extend this analysis to um, to other educational sites, right? And of course, one could extend it well beyond India as well, right? To, to other um, um, institutions of higher education, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, for me, what's so interesting about um, technical education is that um, like the term meritocracy itself, um, it was um, it was advanced as a kind of democratizing promise, right? Um, technical education, unlike law um, or the, or even the humanities and social sciences, which were always seen more as a preserve of a social elite, um, technical education was seen as a, as a social leveler. Right, I mean, it was supposed to be the knowledge of the everyman, um, in in part because of the way it um, it allowed for embodied forms of of, of labor, right, um, to to enter um, new kinds of modernizing projects, right. So, um, if you look at the colonial period in India. Um, Technical education is both heralded as something that will uplift, right, um, the um, uh, the commoner, right. At the same time that it is supposed to be part of this uh, colonial state project of modernization, um, so it had this sort of promise of being a social leveler um, and of being a um, a vehicle for. Um, enhancing the status of the colonial state, um, uh, but it was always it was always haunted by um, the hierarchies of colonial society, right? I mean, whether these were racial hierarchies. So, if you look at um, the engineering services um, all through um, the late nineteenth century, um, the there there was a, a privileging of 
of the of the English engineer over and above the Indian one, right? Uh, there were all of these sort of assumptions about who could best um, embody um, um, uh, this new knowledge, right? Um, and 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 the 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 white engineer was always seen as better able um, uh, to embody this new knowledge. And similarly, once the field opened up uh, to Indians and technical training was extended to to so-called natives. Um, uh, you see other hierarchies kind of entering the fray, right? And caste becomes this really important instrument of stratification. Um, so even though lower castes were recognized uh, by uh, colonial officials um, as as having more skills, right? As having a kind of um, uh, training in... Um, um, in, 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 in crafts, in forms of embodied labor, uh, they were very quickly um, marginalized in favor of an upper caste elite um, because, because there was this other side to technical education, right? It was supposed to be a high status, um, uh, a high status pursuit um, that 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 would shore up the kind of hierarchies of the colony and shore up the status of the state, and for those purposes, high castes were seen as much better suited, right? Um, so there was always this sort of, and you know, this this kind of contradiction, if you will, at the heart of technical education, um, that it was supposed to uh, to both be a leveler, um, both bring a kind of um, subaltern class into. Uh, modern forms of knowledge and into modern industries, but it was also supposed to do this other work, right, of shoring up hierarchy, shoring up status. That goes at the heart of what I was wanting to ask you. And, you know, that brings me, what you were saying right now, that brings me to the second question, so this I, this process of shoring up hierarchies, this process of shoring up privileges, shoring up inheritances to kind of make it converted into then a sort of a, caste secular category, so to say, in a way that most, a lot of the discussion about those kinds of inheritances and hierarchies um, in sort of post-independent India, increasingly in the last two decades, has occurred through the language of, of reservation, right? Um, reservation for marginalized caste groups in public higher education and public employment. And you give us a very sort of, you know, a rigorous account of the land, so-called, you know, what has now become landmark legal battles and cases right from the 1951 case in the Madras High Court um, to the 1992 and 2008 uh, case in the Supreme Court, which produced a distinct language to talk about caste-based discrimination in only one way. And uh, in a way that a large, a through line in the book is the discourse that is produced. The language is in a way which uh, people can talk about caste inheritance through sort of a certain idea of of castelessness and merit, um, and in a sense, what law leaves unnamed, as you say, which is caste inheritance, as you were just describing, as a basis of achievement, which politics does not. And as a reader and inheritor of a certain set of privilege and uh, achievements myself. I was so drawn into the ways in which the discourse 
of merit is reproduced through three categories, which are so often used not only in uh, sort of spectacular legal debates, but also in ordinary um, conversations about the idea of merit and in sort of pedagogy itself. And I wanted to, uh, for our listeners, to trace the ways in which you describe them in your book. And I, I have three in my mind uh, which are very crucial to that kind of reproduction of uh, merit as castlessness, which is the idea of the community, uh, one. Uh, secondly, the idea of middle-classness. And thirdly, this category, this moniker, as it were, of a general caste. So can you, can you, by the way, of sort of tracing the way in which you trace these three categories in, your, in, the, in the book itself, tell us about how this set of inheritances is remade by being disavowed and reconfigured or reconfigured in what we can even call as you do the alibis of caste yeah um it's a it's a really interesting story of how caste privilege becomes invisible right um and other other discursive terms come to stand in uh for caste belonging um, and one of the arguments I'm making is that, um, you know, with, uh, with the advent of independence, um, and the institution of formal equality, um, there's a way in which, um, uh, uh, lower castes remain marked, um, by their caste status, by their, by their caste belonging, while upper castes come to be unmarked, right? Um, and, uh, and, and paradoxically, um, this happens, um, it, it, it happens, you know, through a vi- variety of mechanisms, but one of the key mechanisms that I look at is, um, um, is reservations, right? So paradoxically, the commitment to caste-based reservations as a mechanism of redress, right, for historical um, injustices, um, ends up reinforcing the invisibility of privilege, right? And it does so uh, by um, making only sort of one side, right, of the equation uh, marked by caste. So it's only those who are eligible for um, the reserved category um, who are identified on the basis of their cast um, of their of their caste, right? So, caste identity is marked um, when it comes to the reserve category, uh, but not when it comes to the the other side, right? Which is the general category of merit based admissions. So, this sort of absenting of caste from the general category uh, has played a really crucial role. Um, in allowing upper castes to claim um, uh, a form of castlessness, right, and to and, and to inhabit merit as a um, as a collective um, property, right, um, and uh, so and the other way that this happens, so there, there's the there's the reservation debate and the sort of uh, uh, um, and the distinction between the reserved and the general, right? 
um, which kind of plays into the uh, the invisibilizing of uh, caste when it comes to upper caste. Um, there's also um, uh, a kind of discourse of middle classness, um, which uh, which allows for the same kind of thing to happen. And um, one of the things that I uh, do in the book, um, and this again sort of brings us back to why technical education is so important, right? Um, I mean, technical education um, is is really you know seen as the vehicle for middle class advancement, right? Uh, so, um, if you if one just looks at the number of engineering colleges um, that are uh, that are there in India today, I mean, it, you know, at the at the uh, um, in 1947 when India became independ- independent. Uh, there were fewer than a hundred engineering colleges, and there's been an explosion since, right? Um, in part because of um, massive state investment, right, um, in a uh, technologically driven model of development, um, um, which which had its kind of corollary in the education field in the uh, proliferation of engineering colleges, right? Um, and, and engineering very quickly becomes the aspiration of an emerging middle class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and the IITs are kind of emblematic of this uh, of this drive, uh, right? To um, um, to um, gain admission into engineering um, colleges uh, as either a pathway into the middle class or a way of um, of shoring up pre-existing forms of social capital, right? Um, so it really is a site of aspiration that's almost sort of um, incomparable, right? I mean, I guess medicine would be another one, but I think engineering even more so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you look at this kind of claim to castlessness on the part of um of uh, of of an upper caste um, professional class, in part, the way this claim is advanced is through is through middle classness, right? So, um, uh, I did a, a huge number of um, uh, oral history interviews with IITNs, both past and present, um, and you know, one of the kind of recurring themes in these interviews um, was about their own middle-class background, right? Uh, so they would make a point of, of, uh, of stressing that they didn't come from landed wealth. They didn't come from industrial wealth, right? That, you know, we're not, we're not members of a, of a business class, right? Uh, we are, we're the intelligentsia, right? I mean, these are people, uh, most of whose parents were civil servants. Um, and who uh, populated the ranks of the bureaucracy, right? Uh, so they had this sort of conception of themselves as, you know, of humble origins. Um, and so this sort of claim to middle classness was a way of um, not speaking about caste, right? Um, so caste privilege was bracketed uh, in favor of a self-presentation as part of a middle class. Right. Um, 
so I think that's another way in which the kind of castlessness of this uh, of this group um, uh, really gets kind of foregrounded, right, over and above their caste belonging. Um, and in the in the in the um, you had also mentioned community as another term, right? Um, I don't. I mean. I was thinking particularly of the way in which you tell us, in the way uh, you tell us about sort of the idea of uh, Tamil Brahmins, particularly as a community, let's say. In fact, that this is part of, this part of a tradition, this is part of a culture, this is part of a, uh, the way that's projected, right? So if you speak to that in terms of the making of a community as also sort of a, a less descriptive but more of a sort of a achievement-oriented category. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I mean the, the the sort of Thummer Brahmin dimension of this story is uh, is perhaps one I should say a little bit more about. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been asked when I've presented this material is um, is what accounts for its strong regional focus uh, when you know I'm I'm talking about a set of national institutions and and I think it's worth it's worth saying that. Um, um, as with IIT Madras, I mean, IIT Madras is, is, is one among a number of IITs. And I, and, I, and I expect that as with IIT Madras, where a regional history of caste has been hugely consequential um, in shaping the social dynamics of, uh, of the institution, I, I, I expect that the same would be the case for any of the IITs, right? And not simply because uh, uh, a significant proportion of the student body is drawn from, um, from the region. Um, and this is especially the case for the faculty, uh, but also because of the, of the relationship between these regional histories and, um, uh, and, uh, and a national institution, right? What does it mean for a national institution, um, that is, um, directly administered by the central government. What does it mean for an institution of this kind, right, uh, to uh, to inhabit a regional space, right? Um, what is what is the kind of um, relationship that it has to its regional environs, and how does that relationship play out um, within the institution? So that's one of the things that I was really interested in, and. And Tamil Brahmins are are so key to this uh, to this dynamic, this kind of relationship between IIT Madras to its regional environs, because of um, the history of non Brahminism, right? Um, so, um, non Brahminism and Dravidianism as two movements that kind of swept the southeastern region and really transformed uh, everything from everyday uh, everyday. Um, social life to um to the character of the state um um and the, and the kind of the 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 kind of unique <laughs> the unique hostility between these movements and thummer brahmins in particular um has really uh, given them um a sense that um that central government institutions like iit madras are a refuge Right, uh, they're a refuge away from the the hostilities um, uh, of regional politics. Right, so very early on, um, as soon as the institution was founded in 
um, you see Dhamma Brahmins kind of making a claim on the institution, right? Um, and, um, and doing so um, in part through speaking of their own unique um, cultural, right, affinity for um, higher education, right? Um, so there are all these sort of arguments about Tamar Brahmanism as, um, as intellectualism, right? Um, of, uh, you know, that the reason Tamar Brahmins in particular do so well in this highly competitive admissions exam is because um, there, there's a certain sort of culture of learning, right? Uh, that makes them um, uniquely predisposed, right, to do well um, in these kinds of exams. So there's a kind of culturalist argument that's advanced, right, um, that that sits um, next to the kind of cl- middle class argument in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, in a sense, they both end up being sort of essentialist arguments about both uh, about both culture and class in the sense that certain caste groups and certain class groups are predisposed to a certain kind of, in the way that they're spoken of, uh, certain kinds of essentialisms. And, uh, and and those essentialisms get reproduced through legal judgments, through, um, through the ways in which uh, the politics of privilege conducts itself and through the ways in which um, the response to a subaltern assertion of rights is crucial to understanding how it is showed again and again in the ways you do describe in the book amazingly. That, you know, and in a way that leads me to my, my next question, which is, which is the ways in which you uh, trace this, uh, this reproduction of caste inheritance not only in the story of uh, IIT Madras or the five national IITs first and then more uh, within India, but the way in which it travels and circulates globally uh, to create a certain brand India, which it becomes brand IIT in so many ways, right? And it is particularly, the, it's not lost on either you or me that we are, uh, we're just you know we're going to be discussing something like brand IIT in the aftermath of just the day after a series of very uh, very oppressive um, ways in which the the current government is current central government is is quelling student protest across the country in response to in the 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 kinds of uh, protests about. Citizenship being at the stake of these protests, right? The fa- the the idea of the idea that's very dear to uh, the current government about brand brand India being at the stake of these protests in a way that they, that they may understand it. So, in that spirit, actually, I wanted to ask you about how you address caste in the diaspora studies of India in a very very interesting way, and how you highlight uh, a story which we don't hear very often is the movement of Indian migrants. Uh, post the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which becomes a kind of self-selection, right, from among the highly skilled, which is perhaps another word in, at this moment for a predominantly upper caste formation. And this, in your in your in your own words, it 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 means a balancing act between the marking and unmarking of caste as an achievement between between India and between the U.S. So, can you tell our listeners? 
about more about the kinds of, if I can use that word, self-racialization of a procrastinator in response to the kinds of racial stratification that operates in the U.S. For example, um, how how claims of being members of the Aryan race in the early 20th century for claiming nationalization give way to claims of class, claims of nationality as by way of being foreign, our um, educational achievement as well, to fashion themselves as a modern minority in a way you tell the story, particularly through highlighting the formation of brand IIT, which itself has moved from the kind of prestige it accumulates uh, through the early years of most of the uh, IIT diasporic uh, alumni uh, in academic research and corporate employment to now entrepreneurial success and wealth accumulation. So what are these kinds of uh, sort of connections and disconnections between the ways in which um, the predominantly forward caste diaspora and the making of the brand IIT, uh, what kinds of self-racialization it kind of, you know, it it presents to do something like this? Yeah. um, So I have... um... I've been really interested in the U.S. Indian diaspora for for quite a while, um, and I've been struck by the uh, by the absence of caste in a lot of this literature, um, uh, which you know tends to foreground other kinds of categories, right? Um, of religion, region, um, gender, sexuality, class. I mean, there's a lot that that is. I mean, it's a very rich. Literature, but caste is um, is uh, is kind of marked by its absence, right? Uh, it's almost as if um, when um, uh, you know it, that that it's left behind, right, in the kind of journey over. Um, and I and you know when I looked at the IIT diaspora. Um, it was really clear to me that um, the forms of capital, right, the forms of caste capital that um, that an IIT pedigree um, helps to shore up um, become um, crucial, right, to uh, the professional and economic successes of uh, diasporic IITians, right? And I, I use the term institutional caste kinship um, to talk about uh, these forms of um, of capital. Um, so, uh, I mean, anyone who knows anything about the IITs knows that you know, this is an incredibly strong corporate identity, right? Um, I mean, people, it really is, you know, most, I suppose, most institutions of higher education um, do produce um, their graduates as certain kinds of subjects, and this is this is certainly the case with the IITs. I mean, IITs come out of this experience identifying very strongly, right, uh, with with the institution, and um, so this kind of kinship uh, that's forged um, um, while on campus, um, and then is 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 kind of kept alive and mobilized um, um, uh, after one leaves. 
um, I, uh, I, 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 I tracked how it plays out in the diaspora um, to ensure, you know, um, everything from, you know, admission into um, graduate programs, um, um, you know, seed funding for uh, various kinds of entrepreneurial endeavors, um, and and how you know it wasn't simply that it worked in this uh, kind of subterranean way, right? Um, there was a very kind of explicit project of self-racialization um, that IIT alumni in the diaspora embarked on, and and. I mean, one can see this kind of coalescing, this kind of project of self-racialization. One can see it coalescing um, in the, you know, starting sort of in the 80s on. So um, the first batch of IITians, um, I mean, the uh, migration out of India started very early. Um, so uh, even as early as the 1960s, you had people um, coming to the U.S., um, and but it really sort of picks up uh, pace, right? Um, um, in the seventies and eighties, um, and the the folks who come here early on, you know, it takes you know it takes a couple of decades for them to sort of find their footing, right? Um, a lot of them come here to uh, for higher education, um, and then you know with the um, uh, with the IT boom. Um, many of them um, exit out of uh, out of academia um, and um, into into business, right? Um, and Silicon, the Silicon Valley boom becomes this incredibly important moment, right, for many of these IITians to find their way to California, and and, and once they're there, they become this kind of critical mass. Um, that is uh, that's able to work collectively, right? Um, to shore up this notion of brand IIT and make it legible um, to um, American society, right? Um, so uh, there's this. I mean, there, there there are lots of ways that this uh, uh, this project of brand IIT gets narrated, but. One of the moments that almost everybody identified as as pivotal was um, um, was the the airing of this documentary, um, not documentary, sorry, um, of a sixty minutes episode on the IITs, um, which aired in two thousand and three, um, and it was this kind of um, uh, almost like a promotional ad, right, for the IITs. Um, and it told the story of um, a set of institutions in India, which uh, were islands of meritocracy, right? Uh, within a kind of larger, uh, whatever, um, a, a space of underdevelopment, right? Uh, islands of meritocracy in which you had these um, uh, these unique forms of uh, entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism, and this is important, right? Not just intellectualism, but entrepreneurialism uh, cultivated, which then, you know, once once these graduates come to the U.S., they're able to sort of realize this untapped potential, right? Um, that the U.S. provides them 
uh, a space of opportunity um, to really kind of uh, manifest themselves, you know, um, uh, as not just um, as uh, uh, as as wealth producers, but as as kind of emblematic Indians, right? Um, uh, who who kind of put India on the global stage in a way that was not possible before. So they they're sort of they kind of style themselves both as uh, kind of entrepreneurial geniuses, right? These sort of self-made men, and most of them are men, um, but also as sort of ambassadors, right? National ambassadors, right? Who are who who bring um, uh, um, a kind of relatively sort of untold story of India um, to the global stage, right? Um, and so this kind of project of brand IIT um, it is a way of of doing all of that, but also it it kind of it's an interesting way of um, of claiming a model minority status in the United States, right? So um, you know, all the way through the twentieth century, you see um, this these efforts on the part of elite Indians to um, to stave off the threat of racialization, right? Um, by claiming a kind of difference from other racial minorities in the U.S. Um, and in the early, you know, you mentioned this, Bhumika, in the in, in the in the 1910s, you know, they did so through a claim to whiteness, right? Um, as members of the Aryan race. Um, um, in in the mid 20th century, you know, this was done more through uh, a claim to uh, a professional class status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in you know, after the 1965 Immigration Act, when you know there's a kind of the floodgates open and all of these sort of upper caste professionals um, come to the U.S., um, you know, that becomes the sort of basis for claiming a kind of model minority status. And it's no longer necessary to claim whiteness, right? Um, it's possible now within a sort of new, you know supposedly multicultural America to claim status through, um, um, through Indianness, right. Through a kind of Indian, cl- uh, through a sort of blend of Indianness and professional class status. Um, and then by the two thousands, I mean, you see this, the entrepreneurialism claim becomes yet another way, right. To, um, to argue for their difference, from other racial minorities, right? Uh, as having this kind of model character um, because of their uh, of their of their contributions, right, to the American economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 th- I think that more work needs to be done on um, this the. Um, on the Indian on the U.S. Indian diaspora that that looks at this very complicated um, way in which um, elites, in particular, uh, bring race, caste, and class together mm-hmm. uh, in their kind of projects of self-making, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, that's that's. Yes, thank you. That's that's fantastic. And you know, this this always um, in the way that you sort of manage to reproduce those conversations and the ways in which people talk about their own 
um, caste identities and inheritances, uh, even just sort of re- just look, just listening to and reading those those conversations by itself is is so telling and becomes as you you know it's a diagnostic in some sense as you keep telling us through the book the kinds of caste diagnostics that people are looking out for to to guess uh, what what claims who can make about what kinds of talent and merit whether it's in the diaspora or um, even you know, within uh, that national territory of India, so to speak. And that, you know, I also was thinking in a way, which is uh, always a crucial question about about books that are written, um, and really never the never the least significant question is, is two things I wanted to know about the writing of the book as well, which is, which is about the ways in which you were able to set up these kinds of conversations and, even have them because I'm trying to think of the kinds of censoring that goes on in talking about upper casteness. Uh, so the ways in which you, as um, as a researcher, as a scholar, as an as an anthropologist, as a photographer, had to the ways that you had to look out for. Uh, claims to castlessness in these conversations when they may have been extremely, extremely uh, indirect as well as direct. So I wanted to know more about the kinds of not you know upper caste diagnostics that, in some sense, you had to perhaps cultivate on the fly as a as a researcher talking about these kinds of entitlements and inheritances. And the second question, which I also had when I was reading the book. Uh, and so the moment I finished, I was like, oh, my God, what are these people thinking? Like, have, you know, have, in a sense, thinking about your work and about your book in a way that has it traveled? Has any of it, have they been uh, reading stuff that you've been writing about uh, the book? The book, as I know, come out only recently, so it'll, it'll be, a, you know, a while before it sort of starts circulating in that sense. But they've responded to uh, what you have made of these uh, of these these conversations and these stories and has there been any kind of uh, justifying or not or uh, debating the kinds of claims that you make in in the book itself so those are my two sort of final questions about the book in that yes i mean the the first one is a really it's a really interesting question right um um how does what how does one get at unmarking Right. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things that I did um, is uh, use, use oral history, right, as a way of, of getting at patterns of self-narration, right, um, that ha- had a kind of remarkable consistency across interviews, right? Uh, so, you know, the way people uh, mark or don't mark caste belonging, right? Um, and, and, and you know, sometimes this has to do with, um, you know, their position on certain, you know, hot button topics, you know, whether it's reservations or, um, you know, uh, low caste movements um, or, uh, the transformation of the Indian bureaucracy. I mean, there were all of these, 
really interesting topics which uh, which people sort of took positions on, um, which you know kind of spoke to their own uh, forms of caste identification, right? Um, so I had to kind of my, you know I had to sort of attune my ear uh, for those sorts of arguments. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, it would take the form of an explicit avowal and disavowal. So people would say, yes, I am, I'm Brahmin, but I don't, I don't think of myself as Brahmin. Um, I mean, I grew up in, you know, a cosmopolitan setting where uh, we really didn't sort of think of ourselves in caste terms, right? So sometimes there was that kind of claim to a sort of liberal transcendence of caste, right? Um, uh, so there were all these like different ways in which, you know, the kind of, um, uh, you know, this kind of back and forth between marking and unmarking, uh, worked. Um, and, uh, and I, and I, yeah, again, I mean, I had to sort of, you know, you put it really nicely, you know, I had to sort of cultivate my own kind of cast diagnostics, right? Um, um, to get at these. Um, and I think I got better over time. Um, um, your second question was about the reception, right? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I published a, a piece, um, a journal article in 2015, uh, which really anticipates the book and, makes a lot of the same arguments. Um, and, you know, <laughs> if there's one thing that IITNs do very well, it's it track their own, uh, track media, right, um, on, on the IITs. And so, you know, when I did these interviews, many people did say that they had, re- they had read something of mine, you know, either that they, had kn- they, they knew about that piece or that... Um, uh, they'd read journalistic pieces I'd written. And it was an odd thing because I expected much more pushback than I got. And the only way I can explain that is that, you know, they really saw me as one of theirs, right? I mean, both because of my institutional location at Harvard um, and also because, you know, I have I have an upper caste name. Um, and so I think there was this almost a kind of, active denial that that I could be making the kinds of arguments that I was making. Um, you know, I mean, many of them, many of them, you know, many of them were sort of older men who in, in, convers- in my conversations with them would, uh, you know, would, would liken me to their, to their daughters. Um, so there was a kind of embrace almost, right, uh, of me. Um, uh, and it's, and I don't think that this came out of me, me being, um, dishonest. (laughs) Um, I I just, I I think there was a genuine, um, um, inability perhaps, uh, or unwillingness, um, Mm. To, att- to attribute uh, a kind of critical uh, or even hostile intent to me because of who I am. Um, 
yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm curious to see. I'm already getting uh, emails from some of my interviewees saying that you know they they know that the book is out and they're looking forward to reading it. So I expect a lot of the more maybe maybe um, more of the kind of critical reaction will come once the book is in circulation. Uh, but we but it remains to be seen. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it's it's one of those funny things where the, when you do want a very critical, uh, perhaps a reaction to the ways in which you're writing, because um, and maybe not, because either way, it 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 uh, resonates with what we've been, what you've been saying, and what we've been discussing about the unmarking. Yeah, and I, yeah, I know exactly. It's a very interesting, interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Ajanta. I have taken up some of your time today, but before, and there's so much more to be said about the book and to be discussed, but I'm sure be, there are going to be other avenues where you will do that. Uh, and this was a very, very enjoyable conversation. But before I let you go, I also have to ask you, um, uh, what is it that you're working on next and what can yeah. we expect to read from yeah. you? Um, it's, I have to say, it's, um, it's so nice to be thinking about something else now, because <laughs> as you know, these uh, academic projects last forever. And um, so I am just starting, I'm literally at the very beginning stages of a new project on gold mining. Um, and so the, the hope is that I will uh, eventually write a historical ethnography of the Kolar gold fields um, in the state of Karnataka. Um, and, you know, this was the site of the largest gold mining operation during the colonial period. Um, they started operating in the 1880s and they were finally shut down in 2001, although sort of production levels steadily declined after um, the mid 20th century. And, and at the moment, I'm, I'm interested in kind of three angles on the project. Um, so the first is um, uh, trying to understand KGF um, Kola Goldfields KGF as a as an instance of nested sovereignty, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, this was a this was a colonial company town that was situated within Mysore, which was an Indian princely state um, that was indirectly ruled by the British. So I can I want to understand how these kinds of concessions for you know incredibly lucrative extractive industries functioned, and and what this can tell us about like the spatial ordering of sovereignty, right? And its relationship to, um, to capitalism. Um, and I'm also really interested in the, comp- the colonial company town itself as a form, right? Like as a traveling technology, um, uh, both of uh, you know, social classification, but also of labor control. Um, the company that oversaw the operations at KGF was, the, uh, was John Taylor and Sons, which was this British company that had previously operated silver mines in Mexico. Um, and the company also sent officials to gold mines in South Africa um, to gather in, you know, to do sort of fact-finding, uh, on fact-finding missions to gather insights about how to run a successful operation um, in India. So I really want to look at uh, the colonial company town um, as a site for the transnational traffic in ideas and strategies, right? Uh, and how how you know it kind of uh, how it sort of uh, instrumentalizes these different categories of race, caste, class, et cetera, as part of a 
managerial worldview, right? I mean, and how that kind of shapes shaped operations at KGF. And then, of course, you know, cast is really key here, as it is in all of my work. Um, most of the laborers in KGF were landless Dalits um, from Northern Madras Presidency, uh, who migrated to KGF to become part of the industrial workforce. And so, I'm really interested in understanding the relationship between, you know, caste and class, but also between agrarian and industrial spaces and how they've how they figure in the kind of making of a Dalit working class. Um, so those are the kind of angles on the project that I'm thinking about right now. And and I'm hoping that this will be a more collaborative than the last two projects. Um, so um, I got some of these ideas from the work of a former student named Ranjani Srinivasan, who uh, did her master's thesis at um, the Harvard Design, um, Harvard um, uh, at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. And um, she wrote her master's thesis on uh, the spatial and ecological dimensions of the KGF story. Um, so I'm hoping to continue uh, to collaborate with her and um, and also with Elizabeth Ferry, who's an anthropologist at Brandeis, who's worked on silver mining in Mexico and wants to look at the Real del Monte silver mines where John Taylor and Sons first embarked on mining. So, um, you know, I mean, a lot of us who do anthropological work, I mean, our, our research is, is inherently collaborative, but we don't really foreground that in the way we write. I really want this to be a much more explicitly collaborative endeavor. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. I mean, I mean, this is very exciting, especially given that uh, the stuff that we do have on company towns is mostly, as far as I know, a story of post-independence India and sort of the Soviet collaboration and the West German collaboration on these kind of uh, technologies in company towns that came Absolutely. up as... Yeah. Uh, as as story of nationalism, so that this this insight about colonial company town in that sense, I'm sure is something that be very very useful and significant for uh, what you're calling these sort of traveling technologies. So that's very exciting. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and and all the best with um, a collaboration project. Yeah. Maybe more of this. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you so much for your time today, Janta. Thanks, and bye bye. You too. You're welcome. It was a really it was a pleasure. <laughs>